Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Anna Marsh, and today we're going to be talking about all things mitochondria. Before we dive into that, I'll pre-frame this episode by saying, if you've listened to some of the other episodes in the past, I talk about fatigue or low energy as something impacting the body's ability to make ATP, the body's energy currency. And of course, there are multiple different mechanisms or combinations of mechanisms which can result in poor ATP or poor energy production. And one of those mechanisms is poor mitochondria health or some sort of metabolic roadblock in the process by which the body makes energy via the mitochondria. So we do want healthy and well-functioning mitochondria when it comes to energy production. And what you'll probably start to realize as I talk a little bit more about the mitochondria today is that a lot of the practices that we would use to support the mitochondria or the health of the mitochondria are also practices that we would use when considering other aspects of energy and biochemistry, some of which I've already talked about in previous episodes, like blood sugar or oxygenation or digestive health. So this is where we really want to see the body not in a reductionist approach, so reducing systems down to isolated processes, but rather see the body as a network of interlinking symptoms. And that's why when we work on one aspect of our health, it can start to improve other aspects that we didn't think we were directly targeting, but but it can have that knock-on benefit. When we are talking about the mitochondria today, there may be a little bit of overlap in terms of some of the other things I've talked about on previous episodes, um, and that means I might not go into those specific details because you can just go back and listen to a whole podcast on blood sugar, for example, um, but I might make uh, you know so, small references to you know what you can do in this episode. So as we dive in, I guess the first thing to cover is what are the mitochondria? I appreciate I've thrown this word around now a few times and we're only a few minutes into the podcast episode, but it might be helpful just to first of all understand what it is. And basically, our human bodies are made up of cells and all cells have mitochondria within the cell. So the mitochondria are often referred to as the cell's energy producing powerhouses or energy producing factories because it is through a series of biochemical transactions or biochemical processes that happen within the mitochondria that the body produces is or should I say is able to produce ATP. So we can make a little bit of energy not using the mitochondria, which I'll talk about in a moment, how that happens, but we make the majority of our energy using the processes inside the mitochondria and the mitochondrial membrane. So this means that if we want to make more energy or be effective at making energy, we want to have 
mitochondria. We want to have lots of them. We want them to be dense within the cell and we want them to have everything that they need to function optimally. And that's what this episode is all about. But before we talk about mitochondria specifically, let's kind of talk a little bit about the steps that come before, because this is where you'll start to see that there's an overlap between mitochondrial health and some of the other things that I've already talked about on this podcast. If we're thinking about energy production in the form of ATP, there's really a whole series of steps that has to take place before we can make energy. And the first step is we need food. So we make energy from proteins, fats, carbohydrates in the diet. Um, In the absence of carbohydrates, we can also make ketones and they can be used for energy as well. And this really relies on us, first of all, eating. (laughs) We need to eat enough calories. We need to eat food and fuel our bodies appropriately. Then that food needs to become digested which I talked about on the gut health episode, we need to be able to adequately chew and break down and digest our food and then also absorb it. So absorption being an active process, which means that we need healthy gut membranes to absorb the food. And then once we've absorbed the food, it needs to be transported And we also need to be able to transport oxygen because the mitochondria use the fuel from our food in the presence of oxygen to make energy. So we need to be able to transport food into the cells, which requires healthy functioning insulin. And we also need to be able to transport oxygen into the cells, which requires healthy red blood cells. And I talked about this in the oxygenation episode. There's certain nutrients which are important for that to happen. So then we get to the cell. And if we use glucose as an example, we essentially will transport glucose via insulin into the cell and then we can start to actually burn that glucose. And this doesn't happen in the mitochondria. This happens in the cytosol of the cell. So your proteins, your fats, your carbohydrates are broken down into a molecule which is called acetyl-CoA. And then we can use acetyl-CoA in the mitochondria to begin the processes which help us to make ATP. So we make a very small amount of energy in the cytosol of the cell when we're undergoing all these um, nutrients or undergoing the process of glycolysis, so sugar burning. We can do that without oxygen and we can do that very quickly. So what it means is when we need energy instantly, like we might need energy instantly if we were responding to a big threat or a big stress and we had to run away or we had to flight and fight or flee, when the nervous system is very activated, the body will tend towards glycolysis because it's quick, it's fast, it's easily available, we don't have to rely on oxygen, but the yield is low. So we can only produce two molecules of ATP in the cytosol of the cell. But then if we have the time, we can then start to burn fats in the mitochondria in the presence of oxygen, and that can further yield another 36 ATP. 
So you, it, the only challenge is that it, it takes a little bit longer. So it's not an instantaneous energy source. It takes a little bit longer, but the yield is very high. And we do obviously need to rely on oxygen and various other nutrients for those, um, that mitochondrial function to happen properly. So now understanding all of this, you can probably begin to understand a little bit more about the factors that can influence the production of energy through the mitochondria. And if you've listened to previous episodes, for example, the cell danger response episode, one of the things you may have heard me talk about in that episode is that the mitochondria are not only energy producing organelles, they are also our defense organelles. They are sensory organelles. They are scanning the body and they are responding to threats. So the first thing we need to know, and you can always go back and listen to the cell danger response episode if you want all the details on this, is that when the body is under threat, so that could be if there's a toxic overload, for example, it could be that there is a emotional stressor, a mental stressor, the nervous system is in a state of fight or flight, or it could be something like a viral infection or a bacterial infection or some sort of infection, yeast infection, mold infection, um, when the body is experiencing the state of threat, when it understands that it needs to put in its defenses and operate from a place of defense, changes are naturally created in the mitochondria to shut down energy production. And so therefore, the first thing we want to consider when we consider how we support the mitochondria is we need to ask, is the body currently in a state of threat? Because if the body is being threatened, the first thing to do is to help the body reach a place of relative safety. So that means you don't have to necessarily be 100% safe and grounded and calm and chilled out, but the body needs to feel safe enough for the mitochondria to then lower their defenses and then begin to function more optimally. So that's the first thing we want to do is consider the cell danger response, consider if there's an active threat, and then do what we need to do to support the body to find a relative sense of safety so that we can ease up on these changes in the mitochondria and then the mitochondria processes can happen more smoothly in favor of producing energy for the brain and for the muscles and for the organs to function as they should. For the purpose of this episode, let's assume that there's no threat, there's no danger, because that's covered in previous episodes. So let's then look at what we need to know, or how do we then support the body so that we can have healthy mitochondrial function. Where I really believe that we can start with this, if it's just starting from the ground, building healthy foundations, is through our diet and our lifestyle practices. So every time we eat a meal, we have the opportunity to eat in a way that's going to 
offer the mitochondria nourishing foods, which is going to offer the mitochondria nutrients that it might need, and which is going to send signals perhaps of inflammation. So that could be inflammation signals, maybe threatening or anti-inflammatory signals. So signals that send messages of safety to the mitochondria. And this will all over time collectively influence the health of the mitochondria. If we consider, for example, that the mitochondria are part of the cell, then you know healthy cells will work well, healthy cells with healthy cell membranes and healthy mitochondria are going to work really effectively. And how do we build cells? We build cells from the nutrients we're receiving in our diets. And specifically, if we consider cell membranes, cell membranes are made up of fat. So the balance of fat that we have in our diet can then have a positive or negative impact on cell membranes, and then that affects the health of the cell, and then that can also have an impact on the health of the mitochondria. So here we want to think about a diet which has good amounts of healthy fat. So thinking here about things like oily fish, avocado, olive oil, olives, um, coconut products, the MCTs, the medium chain triglycerides and coconut products can be beneficial for the mitochondria. So we really want a diet which has lots of good fat. And, you know, typically where this can go wrong is people who are dieting excessively and cutting fat out of their diet. So their overall fat intake is quite low or if there's digestive issues, um, a lot of my clients on their stool tests, they're not digesting and absorbing fat very well, so that needs supporting. And this is where we circle around to gut health and, and liver and gallbladder health as well. Or maybe someone is eating fats in their diet, they're not dieting, but the choice of fats are poor. So there's a lot of processed fats in, you know, takeaways, processed foods, ready meals, um, you know, non it's okay to have a little bit of saturated fat, for example, from um, grass-fed meat, or it's okay to have cholesterol that you naturally get in eggs. Um, this can actually be very beneficial for the body. But when there's a lot of packaged or processed food, poor quality cuts of meat, processed meats like you know sausages or burgers or things which may have um, you know extra sort of fats or lards added to them, that's not necessarily going to be conducive to creating an anti-inflammatory environment in the body or you know nice healthy cell membranes which are flexible and able to do their job of you know transporting the nutrients that we want into the cell but also releasing the waste products that we produce as well just through our natural metabolic processes so good quality fats in the diet are a must and then we also know that plant-based foods are very beneficial and you know the main ones I'll just drop in here will be things like berries cherries your polyphenols so sort of deep red or deep purple foods tend to be very beneficial for the mitochondria but also things um, like broccoli green tea seaweed almonds they can also have therapeutic benefit there are so many different plant-based foods that have a variety of benefits for health. So of course it would be great to see people having a couple of cups of green tea a day, some blueberries, um, maybe having some broccoli with the meal, some oily fish, those types of foods. But just having good 
variety of plants in the diet, having an abundance of plants with your meals. So aiming to fill, for example, half a plate of um your meal each evening or each breakfast, lunch, and dinner with plant-based foods. That's a really good goal to have in terms of plants. So not really overanalyzing here and going, well, should I choose the broccoli or should I choose the asparagus? Because which is going to be based on my mitochondria. I really encourage people not to overthink, but rather just to aim for color and variety and trust that every food is going to give them some nutritional benefit. So we've talked about plants, we've talked about fats, and then we obviously want to have good quality protein. Protein is such an important nutrient. Um, You know, we don't only need it for energy, but we need it for muscle building, for our lean body mass. And if you have more lean body mass, you have more mitochondria. So um, we want to make sure that we are getting enough protein in the diet, I like to ask clients to aim for about 1.5 grams per kilo body weight. Sometimes we may go much lower in the short term for various reasons. If they're on a ketogenic diet or um, their protein digestion isn't great. So we're just trying to like take the ease that off while we work on some digestive health. But I think 1.5 grams per kilo body weight, maybe a little bit more if you want to lose weight, if you're struggling with blood sugar control, if you're doing a lot of exercise can be beneficial. But I feel like 1.5 grams per kilo body weight is really achievable. And then um, making sure that's then coming from things like your oily fish, eggs, which I mentioned, grass-fed meat. You obviously get some protein from things like nuts and seeds. You can have legumes as well. Um, so a variety of different proteins. Um, you know, if someone is vegan, that's absolutely fine. They've just got to make sure that they're getting enough protein from the vegan foods that they are eating and be prepared to work quite hard at it. Um, And you can obviously use protein powders and things to supplement your diet, but they are a supplement. They shouldn't be the sort of front and center of your diet, just having protein shakes or protein powders to get your protein intake in. You want to be focusing on um, real foods as much as possible, especially if blood sugar is an issue. And that kind of does bring me to the next point, which is we want to have healthy blood sugar. So when the body is um, burning sugar as a fuel, so you may have heard the saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. And the same goes for the way that we use these different metabolic pathways. So using sugar burning versus fat burning. And if we eat a diet, which is very high in carbohydrates and we're having you know quite high carb meals or carbohydrate dominant meals there's a lot of frequent eating going on so there's no real big gaps in between meals but someone's sort of eating every two or three hours and they're snacking a lot and they're quite dependent on carbohydrates they find it quite hard to go without a meal some of the things we maybe talked about in the blood sugar episode then what the body is learning from that behavior is there's always sugar available. I can just rely on my glycolytic um, system. It's cheap. It's easy to run. 
Um, yeah, it doesn't produce that much energy, but you know, there's always, there's always substrate available for this. So when we eat a high carbohydrate diet or we eat in a way that doesn't support healthy blood sugar control, the body learns to use glycolysis to make energy and the mitochondrial pathways weaken. And remember that those mitochondrial pathways, although they maybe take a little bit more work, they have a good energy yield. So they're producing so much more energy than the glycolytic pathways. So one of the ways we can train the body to use those mitochondrial pathways, and if you think of strengthening a muscle in a gym, you go in and you have to train it, which means you have to use it or you lose it. And the same goes for these mitochondrial pathways. We have to use them or we lose them. So in order for us to use them, we have to make sure that blood sugar is balanced throughout the day. And you can refer back to the blood sugar episode for more detail on that. Um, And also we can potentially consider practices like fasting And fasting isn't something I've talked about in a lot of detail yet. I might do just a separate episode on fasting because I do get a lot of questions about how to approach it. And just generally very quickly is I'd say if you are going to use practices like fasting, you want to kind of ramp yourself up towards it, build up towards it instead of just diving straight in. But that might look like reducing how often you eat in a day. So if you're someone who's a snacker, starting to train your body just to have three meals a day and no snacks. And then you can look at reducing the window in which you eat your food. So if you normally eat breakfast at 8 a.m. and dinner at 8 p.m. and you've got a 12-hour window overnight where you're not eating, then what if you could just push breakfast out a little bit later or bring your evening meal in a little bit earlier then maybe you have a 14 hour window and then you know in doing so you can play around with that and um, maybe do a day where you don't have any meals or you just have one meal at the very end of the day so you've done a 24 hour fast maybe that's not something that you do daily some people do but for the most part it's not practical for a lot of people or, or enjoyable if, especially if you like your food um, but that's a way that we can bring more flexibility to our metabolic system because we're not putting in loads of carbohydrate into the system we're not constantly feeding the glycolytic system then that mitochondrial fat burning energy system has an opportunity to go oh yeah we we need to do some work here and in doing so it keeps it strong and healthy that's kind of where we can begin with food and ultimately just really focusing on single ingredient foods unprocessed foods foods in their natural state and making sure that we've got good amounts of those colorful fruit and veg, we've got good amounts of high quality protein and high quality fats, and then carbohydrate consumption is tailored towards blood sugar control. And so this will be different for each person. We all have different carbohydrate tolerances. Mine is really, really rubbish, and I can only eat very, very small amounts of carbohydrate um, on a daily basis. And if I eat something that's just probably what a normal person would consider to be like a standard portion of 
brown rice thinking that that's healthy that could potentially send my blood sugar very high so it's really worthwhile thinking about what your unique blood sugar tolerance is and how do you stay within the limits of that tolerance because that's going to be really important for the health of your mitochondria and if you want to dive deeper into that um, there's obviously the blood sugar episode and there's also the blood sugar mini course that I have on my website Now that we've covered the food bits and bobs, the next thing to think about is just nutrients specifically. So this is where I could teach you all the biochemical pathways, but don't worry, I'm not going to do that. But I'm just going to highlight a few nutrients that could be important. And I'll start with oxygenation. So you can always go back and listen to the oxygenation episode where I talk about the nutrients which are important for red blood cell health. But remember that the mitochondria operate in the presence of oxygen. So we need adequate oxygenation of the body for healthy mitochondrial function. And part of that is going to be the transport of oxygen via the red blood cells, which rely on vitamin B6, vitamin B12, folate, and iron. So we want to be make sure that we are digesting, absorbing, and assimilating those nutrients appropriately because that's going to be a contributing factor for mitochondrial function. Then once we get into the cell, we have certain nutrients, L-carnitine and magnesium. So the next thing we want to consider is we've got fats, we've got carbohydrates, and we've got proteins. And these are broken down into various acids, um, like subaric acid, adipic acid, pyruvic acid, you don't need to worry about the names. And they are then shuttled into the mitochondria where they then form acetyl-CoA. And so there are specific nutrients that are really important in order to get these acids into the mitochondria. And these nutrients or the nutrients involved are carnitine and magnesium. So magnesium is really, really important nutrient involved in over 300 reactions in the body. It can often be low in people with fatigue. So it's always a, it can be, should I say, not always, it can be a quick win for some people when they start taking magnesium. It can really help with their energy. Carnitine, especially if you're vegan, vegetarian, you don't eat a lot of red meat, um, you may benefit from some um, carnitine as well. So then once we've got acetyl-CoA, which has been formed in the mitochondria, then we go through what is known as the citric acid cycle. So the citric acid cycle is a biochemical process that basically helps to produce um, NADH and FADH. And then these are then transported to the mitochondrial membrane and um, it's by transporting electrons along the mitochondrial membrane that the body is unable to make ATP. So I appreciate that's a very quick biochemistry lesson. But what you want to know is that in order for us to produce these NADH and FADH2, we need to go through a series of biochemical steps. And these biochemical steps require nutrients or vitamins and minerals as cofactors. So in other words, 
if we want these steps to operate well, to operate effectively, and therefore energy production to operate well and to operate effectively, we need to have adequate levels of these nutrients, um, which means we need to be able to digest, absorb, and assimilate them from our food. And these nutrients include things like um, iron, for example, come up again, vitamin B3, magnesium, manganese, vitamin B1, vitamin B2. And so without adequate levels of these nutrients, then these processes don't happen as effectively. And if they're not happening as effectively, we don't necessarily make energy as effectively as we'd like to. Then when we get to the mitochondrial membrane, CoQ10, coenzyme Q10, is again another really important nutrient that's important to help shuttle electrons along the mitochondrial membrane, which is how we make energy. So not all of my clients, but some of my clients really benefit from taking B vitamin supplements or, you know, obviously we want to make sure that iron levels are good, magnesium levels are good, and maybe it can be beneficial to take some CoQ10. I do have clients who respond really well to it, and then some clients who don't respond at all. Um, and that's just because it's not their main issue. It's not what they need. So typically, if we're considering testing and how how do we know what someone needs or doesn't need, this is where I really like the Nutrival, um, which will give us an idea of these, how these different biochemical processes are working, but it can also give us an idea of what is your CoQ10 levels like, what are your magnesium levels like, what are your manganese levels like, so we can also see if there's um, low levels of these nutrients are contributing to the function of these processes in the mitochondria. And then finally worth mentioning here is that in addition to needing nutrients to help these pathways work well, heavy metals can inhibit these pathways. So if someone has high mercury or fluoride or arsenic or aluminium exposure for whatever reason, that could be something that's inhibiting the health of these cycles. And so we know that toxins like heavy metals are already an activator of the cell danger response, but they can also affect the body, not only by putting the body into this threat mode, but by inhibiting these energy pathways in the body. So again, the Nutrival, which is one of the tests that I really like, um, it can measure red, um, it can measure blood, heavy metals, um, heavy metal testing is a little bit controversial, but obviously if something's coming up really high in one of these tests, we would definitely want to consider how it's um, maybe impacting these energy pathways, consider the client's health history, where possible exposures could be, and support detoxification in a safe way because heavy metals can be quite tricky to work with. So that's just an understanding of the nutrients that are involved. The other thing that's also really important for healthy mitochondria is um, to be managing oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is really the balance of oxidative species which are produced. They can be produced naturally you know, as a consequence of metabolism happening in the body, but they can also be produced when the cell feels threatened and in danger, and that can actually be self-protective in the short term. 
So we've already said for the purposes of this episode, we're assuming that the cell is okay, it's not in danger. So therefore, we just want to make sure that the oxidative stress of the cell is well managed. And the, the cells have got three antioxidant enzymes, which are important for managing oxidative stress. And this is catalase, glutathione, and superoxide dismutase. And these are enzymes, so they're made from proteins, which is again why we need to have good protein and amino acid consumption, which means we need to be able to also digest and absorb proteins. But in addition to this, we might also need the nutrients which support these enzymes. So adequate levels of iron, copper, zinc, selenium, and manganese are all going to be important for these oxidative, or should I say antioxidant enzymes, which manage the oxidative balance of the cell. So we've talked about the importance of food. We've talked about the importance of cell membrane health and getting good fats in your diet. We've talked about the importance of oxygenation. We've talked about managing blood sugar. We've talked about specific nutrients that can be involved. And I've touched on digestion. I've obviously said that digestion is important because we need to digest, absorb, and assimilate the, the nutrients from our food that are going to be part of these biochemical mitochondrial processes. But we also need good digestive health because if digestive health is imbalanced for whatever reason, that can be something that can then have an impact on mitochondrial function because it's potentially threatening to the cell. And there are certain toxic gases, for example, hydrogen sulfide gas, which can be produced if someone has an excess of sulfur-producing bacteria in their gut, which can directly be sort of toxic to the mitochondria and impact their function. So digestive health is another essential part of the process. And again, I did a whole episode on digestive health. So if you want to touch on that, you can listen back to that episode. The final couple of things that I just wanted to mention here is the hormetic stresses. So hormetic stresses are stressors which in the right dose can be beneficial to the body. And obviously in an excessive dose or if there's not enough of a dose, um, then it can either obviously be ineffective if it's too small a dose or if there's an excessive dose that can create a lot of damage and threat um, to, to the body and to the cell and impact energy production. So these hormetic stresses include fasting, which I've already touched on. You know, fasting is great for blood sugar control, but it can also be good for autophagy, which is the cell's naturally natural waste clearing process. So it's helping the body or helping the cells to clean up their debris, eliminate waste. It's actually facilitating a natural detoxification on a cellular level. So great for blood sugar control, great for detoxification. Also in the right dosage, fasting can encourage um, the increased sort of size and number of the mitochondria. Exercise is another classic one. I already mentioned if you have more muscle mass, you have more mitochondria, but exercise in itself can stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis, which is the process by which the body makes mitochondria. And also it's 
if, especially if we're doing exercise which is at a lower intensity, we are encouraging the workings of these mitochondria machinery and that's going to be beneficial. Exercise is always a bit of a tricky one for people with fatigue because depending on their capacity, they may not be able to exercise at all or as much as they would like. Um, so this has to be considered in the context of what's going on for you right now. And maybe exercise is something that you build up towards. But as soon as someone can exercise, I really encourage them to do as much movement, as much exercise as they physically can within their capacity, because it's going to be great for blood sugar control, great for blood flow, and great for um, building up one's mitochondrial foundations. Then the other things that we can do are heat stress. So for example, if you tolerate it using a sauna, 10 minutes, three times a week can be good for the mitochondria. You know, hot yoga, again, if you can tolerate and tolerate it, another good one for the mitochondria. And um, cold exposure. So cold exposure is really great for the mitochondria. Um, I do believe doing something like 11 minutes per week is sort of the sweet spot for a lot of people. Again, I'll do a whole episode on these hormetic stresses where we can dive into them in a little bit more detail. But 11 minutes a week is like three to four cold showers, essentially, or if you've got a, um, you know, if you've got access to the ocean, like I do, then you can always, you know, do cold water dips. Obviously, be mindful to be safe. Go with a friend um, because a cold water shock can be a thing. So those are the hormetic stresses. And um, again, the other thing also just to consider is a ketogenic diet. So a ketogenic diet can mimic fasting. So even if you're not eating or you are eating, but you're eating foods which are very, very low in carbohydrate, that could be a stepping stone towards doing some fasting. And then the final thing here to consider would be thyroid function. So thyroid hormones or adequate amounts of thyroid hormones do have a positive impact on mitochondrial biogenesis. So this means that we want to do some basic thyroid screening, just check that thyroid hormones are where we want them to be. And if they're not, then we need to start to look for the reasons why they might be low. So I'm sure there is so much more I could potentially say when it comes to mitochondria, but this is probably like a really great understanding at least of where to start. So I'll just finish with a little bit of a wrap up. And the first thing we want to consider is just the basics of a healthy diet. So whole foods, proteins, good um, balance of fats in your diet, colorful plants, and to optimize blood sugar. So once you've got those foundations of blood sugar stability, there's an opportunity there to play around with some fasting and then maybe layering on things like exercise stress, heat stress, cold stress as appropriate for you. Um, we want to make sure that we're including some of those therapeutic foods. So I had mentioned things like oily fish, berries, cherries, almonds, broccoli, green tea, seaweed, and any kind of polyphenols would be great. But again, just color and variety, I think, keep it simple. We want to think about good digestive health. If there's any kind of obvious gut niggles, those are definitely things we want to address. 
Testing can be helpful sometimes to reveal if there's any specific nutrients we're lacking, which can be beneficial because there's so many different pathways in the functioning of the mitochondria to produce energy. It's really difficult just to guess. So this is where testing can help us understand which nutrients that you might need specifically. And then we can top up with extra nutrients there, but kind of keeping things simple just a really good B-complex, maybe a multi-mineral, checking iron levels, playing around with a bit of CoQ10 um, could all be beneficial. And then we want to make sure that we're oxygenating well, that we're managing inflammation through our diets and lifestyle practices. And just a final one here is also just sleep, making sure that we're optimizing our sleep, we're getting sunlight in the morning, um, we're watching out for bright light and blue light at night, and um, we're doing all the things we know to do for sleep hygiene so that we're sleeping really well. So that is um, probably a good place to wrap up in terms of things you can do to support your mitochondria. And um, hopefully that's given you some big rocks that you can work on, some big chunks and big pieces of the puzzle. Obviously, if you would like more help and support with your fatigue recovery journey, you're more than welcome to reach out and discuss your options of working with me. And if you've enjoyed the podcast today, please leave a review, maybe share it on your social media, tag me, let me know what your big takeaways were. Um, you sharing this information just helps other people who also need it um, to find it so you can share the love. So wishing you a wonderful fatigue recovery day, and I will see you in the next episode.